Hi there. Uh, welcome to And Another Thing with Penny Blackmore. I actually just started recording and I said welcome to happy hour instead. That was dumb of me. Um, how are you going this week? I apologize for my audio quality last week. Um, I'm an idiot. I don't know how to record things. And so this week I had my boyfriend set up the equipment for me. So um, I've tested it and it sounds a lot better. Um, so ugh, I have so many things to talk about, but I don't know how much depth I can go into on any of them. So I'm just going to give it a go because the equipment's already set up. and <laughs> I want to pack it away. So first of all, I want to talk about delay as a mechanism for changing habits, um, particularly habits that you don't want to have. And I'm sure this is kind of like an established philosophy, but um, it really came to me in a real way last night. So first of all, I'm always trying to spend less money. I'm pretty frivolous with money. I'm not good with it. Um, I buy things by accident all the time. It's like click, click. And then next minute I'm like, whoops, <laughs> I bought it. Looks like it's mine now. Um, which is like, we all have our faults, right? <laughs> but, um, one thing that I've been really experimenting with lately is just like, putting things in the bag and then shutting the window and being like, you can buy that. You just don't have to buy it now. Um, the only place that that kind of falls down is when I want to buy something for a special occasion. Like for example, I'm going to a, a holiday party at Brit's house on Saturday night. I'm so excited about it. And naturally I have absolutely nothing to wear, <laughs> which is just, I mean, like this is a tricky thing. You, I find, yeah, actually, no, I won't go into that. I was going to start talking about how hard it is to like get dressed for sort of dressy occasions when it's winter because it's like, how do you look nice when you have layers and layers of clothing on? But the other example um, with regards to delay, um, which I think was, it was actually a breakthrough moment for me. So last night my boyfriend was like coming home and I'd been at home by myself all day and it was just kind of getting to that time of day where I was like, I'm lonely, I'm bored, I don't want to work anymore, I'm reading a book, but I would just so much rather someone was here. Um, and usually like, I like, I prefer working at home by myself during the day, but when it gets to about five o'clock, I'm fully open to have someone drop around or whatever. Um, and so he said he was going to get home at 6.30 and he was fully communicative and he was like, I'm going to be running a little late. I'm just finishing this beer, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, cool. And something inside me that I can't identify was angry about this. I was like, I'm going to give him shit when he gets home. Well, I mean, I don't know if it was that sort of thought through, but um, I definitely like wasn't happy about it. And I kind of like wrote a few messages to different friends and then deleted them. Like I was like, I'm so annoyed at Jed. And then I was like, I'm going to just delete that because I don't even know what I'm annoyed about. And I had a feeling like any one of my friends would be like, what? what? So he's going to be a bit late. Like, is there any, you know, who cares? It's not like you have a time sensitive dinner. It's not like it's a date night. It's not like you have any special plans. Just occupy yourself for 45 minutes. It's not a big deal. Um, and I can occupy myself for 45 minutes. So I kind of had this like 
a bit of mental gymnastics where I was like, how can I blame my boyfriend for being late to something that is not even an event? <laughs> late home, but not even that late and only marginally and why does it matter? And it took me ages to figure out what was going on. And in fact, I couldn't figure out what was going on. So I kind of just did this thing with myself where I was like, just get over it. <laughs> just like, d like, let's see what happens when he gets home. Just be fine with it. Just act like you're fine with it because maybe you are fine with it. Maybe you're just an irrational, chaotic woman. And then like, if you want to get angry later, you can, you can totally do that, but you can't do it right off the bat. And so, the, uh, you know, and then he comes home and I'm in a good mood and we have a lovely conversation. We eat dinner together at the table. We have a wonderful time. And I'm like, fucking hell, like if I had just followed that impulse or at least I hadn't delayed it, um, then we wouldn't have had this. It would have been a shitty night. We would have had a stupid little fight and then I would have had to say I was sorry a thousand times. So, and I, th I think the thing, the mechanism that works for me is like, I don't like, I have trouble like disregarding my feelings because feelings are always just feelings, right? They're not rational things. And sometimes they're sort of correct and sometimes they're absolutely not correct. <laughs> um, and so I think this really was a great mechanism for me because I was like, this way, if I think about it this way, I'm never disregarding my feelings and I'm never not allowing myself to have feelings but I say to myself, like, what would happen if you just had the, like held on to those feelings for later? Um, and then often like that sort of the negative feelings just disappear because they weren't based on rational or material um, happenings anyway. Um, yeah. So and, and another um, example I have of delay is when I quit smoking. So I was pretty, quitting smoking was actually super easy for me. I was like very ready to quit. It was completely my decision. I read the book about quitting smoking and it, you're meant to smoke throughout the book, but I couldn't even smoke till the end of the book. I quit like halfway through the book because I just didn't want to anymore. Um, I was kind of bored of it. I was like, oh, must I go and have another cigarette? It was just like another stupid thing I had to do every day. Um, but like, obviously, you know, when you're in a social situation and people go outside to smoke a cigarette, it, it was the first, genuinely the first time in my life where I was one of the people being left inside. Um, and that was not, I didn't like that at all. I was like, I want to be out there. <laughs> I don't know what's going on out there. It's this real grass is greener kind of scenario. Um, so something I said to myself was like, I can definitely have another cigarette if I want to. I can have a cigarette anytime. I'm just not going to do it now. And so it was always like kind of in my future. And so I went through a couple of months where I was like, I didn't even have one drag. I didn't even think about it. And especially after a few drinks, I was like pretty proud of myself that I was able to just not even entertain that notion. But then I guess like probably six months in there were there was one time when I was kind of semi flirting with this guy but not in a not in a serious way but like we were kind of having flirtatious banter and I remember just and I was pretty drunk and I was like can I have a drag of your cigarette and it's like that's such a flirty thing to do 
Um, and he was like, yeah, sure. And I took a drag and I was like, oh, that was absolutely disgusting. <laughs> like, it, I don't know if you've ever quit smoking and then had a cigarette, but it's just like not what you want at all. It's really foul. And you become much more um, sensitive to the smell of cigarette smoke, which is so hypocritical that all quit smokers are like, oh, who's smoking? <laughs> um but yeah, and then there was maybe one other time where I was like with a girlfriend in a serious situation and we were having a really serious chat about something and I was like, I'm going to need a drag of that cigarette. And I had another drag and I was like, Mah! and now I fully fundamentally know that deep inside of myself, I know I'll never smoke again. I know I won't even have a drag, but like sometimes never is too long. That's what I'm trying to say, like saying I can't have this feeling now or I can't have this cigarette now or whatever. It's too long. So just tell yourself, I'll do it later. I'm not going to do it now, but I will do it later and I can do it later if I want to. Not I will. I can. The option is there. Um, so I just wanted to share that little hack. Oh, God, not a hack. I hate hacks. But it, for me, it was like a little trick for myself. Um, another thing that I was talking about with a friend recently we were talking about what it is to like be an adult and like what is the nature of adulthood um because I think someone was saying to me like one of our friends was like oh yeah I mean like you and Jed kind of run a very adult household and I was like oh I mean I never really planned on that and it, it, I and it kind of I think in the Berlin standard it can be easy to be <laughs> have your shit together a little bit more but I started thinking and we were discussing like what does it mean to have more adult or adult interests as opposed to more juvenile or adolescent interests and the conclusion I came to was that you like there's things that are associated with adulthood and things that aren't but at the end of the day like when you when you as you grow up you do actually just naturally lose an inclination for certain things. Like when I was younger, I couldn't think of anything better than sitting in a room with heaps of people and, you know, like I don't know some of the people, I don't like some of the people, but it's like a big rowdy social situation. That would sound really good to me until I was about 30, maybe even later than that. But um, now that sounds like my idea of torture. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I've gotten really serious about the nature of conversations I like to have. Um, like I really want, I like a good one-on-one -on -one conversation and I like a good four to six person conversation where it's like, you know, a little vibey, maybe you're talking about serious subjects or maybe you're talking about funny subjects, but like I, do, I never enjoy the d dynamic anymore where I have to kind of like outperform other people in order to get attention or to tell my story or whatever um I hate that manic energy that came with youth and like this performative uh kind of nature of socializing so I don't want that anymore and it's not that I made that decision it was just that it ha happened completely organically and I think another aspect of growing up and being an adult is the idea that you can actually see things when you're young, you're so passionate and you get, you're really black and white about everything. And I know this is a huge cliche, but um, when you're older, you're like, oh, well, you know, 
I, I mean, there's this great Zadie Swiss Smith, blah, 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 Zadie Smith quote. Um, I can't remember the quote exactly, but she's talking about politics and like being a radical and being an activist and so on, which she isn't. She's a writer. Um, but she says that she doesn't really believe that you should be able to spout off about something, like get really, you know, oh, it should be this way or it should be that way. She thinks you shouldn't really get to do all of that or you can't be taken too seriously unless you have skin in the game. So to her, I mean, like this is not, I'm not saying I completely agree with this, but she was saying that like unless you have your kids in the public schools in the neighbourhood or, you know, you have, you're invested in some way, then you can't really, everything you say is just words. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting perspective and a very adult one. I'm just going to stop for a sec. Um, okay, I just needed to get a glass of water. I realised I was very thirsty. Um, okay, so the next thing I want to talk about <laughs> is Downton Abbey. I love Downton Abbey and I the reason I love it is because... I don't know, like actually I think the pandemic has done something to everyone. Maybe it's just me, but I think it's also everyone. <laughs> and I'd love to know what you think about this. But does anyone not like I don't want to know what's happening in the future anymore. I used to really get into like science fiction-y stuff and dystopian thrillers and futuristic fantasy stuff. Um, in terms of like movies and books and so on. I was really interested in visions of the future. But now I feel like I have a vision of the future and it's scary and boring. <laughs> um, and so I like, I don't know, I've, it's almost like I've regressed. I, I want to go back into the past and I have this sense of nostalgia about simplicity and community and like even the church and like religion and family and it's funny because like I don't I don't do religion personally um I don't think there's anything wrong with it really I think like organ many churches and so on have fucked up pretty epically but um but yeah like I think I feel like just these period costumes and these cozy kind of castles and, and the upstairs downstairs dynamic like I'm just I'm so fascinated by it and I find it extremely comforting and I have a feeling that one of the reasons that Harry Potter is still so popular is because it's like there's no phones there's no kids with modern issues it's kind of just very dated in a way it's it's quite dated but it has this kind of ephemeral um, what's the word ephemeral no uh, anyway, this this ongoing quality around tweedy little jumpers and school and and parchment and like and everything's kind of I don't know it's it's so comf everything about that is so comforting. So anyway, Downton Abbey is a show I fully recommend it if you're even if you're not into kind of like the period pieces or the bonnet dramas. Um, I'm getting my boyfriend to watch it and he's really enjoying it. Um, and the, basically the premise of the show, and I think what it does really unusually well, is it kind of documents this time in history where um, these big aristocratic manor houses, so Downton Abbey is a, a, a manor house, I think, that's what you call it, um, like a really large house for wealthy people. Um, and it 
so actually maybe I should explain this in case you have no idea what I'm talking about. But basically in the English aristocracy, the aristocrats would would have a house that was handed down to them by the male generation. So women couldn't inherit anything, but men could. And they would also own the surrounding land so that they would rent the land out to the farmers who were called tenant farmers. Um, and they would collect the income. They'd own the village, basically. They'd own this sort of pocket of land, um, which I assume is kind of a ca- the size of a county, a small county. Um and they would make money off that and then they would run a full staff downstairs. So these huge houses, you know, they don't clean themselves and the, and the family are certainly not doing it. So they have like a staff of like 20 people, I assume at a minimum downstairs who um, like run the house, they light the fires, they pick up the mail, they make the dinners and they have like all these crazy traditions around butlers and footmen and valets and ladies maids and and I think the thing that the the thing I love about the show is it really taught me I think it's so interesting to look at stuff like the English aristocracy and try and understand how that's impacted history in an on an ongoing basis and impacted behavior so one of the things that really stands out to me about Downton Abbey is like the people downstairs so the servants they they on the show they kind of like vary in the loyalty that they have to the family but the one thing they do really take seriously is the idea of rank and hierarchy so the butler is typically the top of the hierarchy then there's kind of the housekeeper who's a woman um, and she's kind of equal but definitely not nearly equal um sorry she's kind of like a step down but adjacent in a way um and then there's all these people underneath and they're very they're very keen to they're very proud of their place if they have a place that that means that they've really worked very hard and they're trying to ascend this ladder slowly but the clever thing about Downton Abbey is that it's set at a time when um these houses were starting to these, these manor houses like Downton Abbey were starting to disappear because, um, because of the changing nature of, of the way people make money. So it's, it's kind of post-industrialization. Um, there's been a world war in World War One. I. I think it's set in sort of like uh, just before the war. It starts when the Titanic sinks, basically. That's the kickoff for the show. And um, you should absolutely watch it. Um, and so like basically these people are kind of trying to work up to these promotions where they're like a footman and then a first footman and then a val, I I don't know the rules, but they want to kind of ascend this ladder that is falling out from beneath them. So it's this sort of quite a competitive environment. Um, and also, you know, they, they, some of these people kind of sleep on the premises. Most of them sleep on the premises, um, and they have a lot of loyalty to their to their boss and the family that they work for. And the family have this kind of very bizarre relationship with the servants in that they like they often kind of very sanctimoniously bless them with some kind of favor, like, oh well, if you get sick, you must stay with us. And it's like, where the hell else is this person gonna go? They don't have a home of their own. Um, so it's kind of it's that bit is kind of hard to watch sometimes. 
But um, the family do seem to be very interested and really care about the nature of their the lives of their servants. And I think that's because, you know, if you're just living in a house with your mom and your dad and your two sisters, what else are you going to – like these people are not active people. What are they going to talk about except for getting involved in the petty kind of like – um, gossip that happens upstairs and downstairs. So, and and when I say upstairs and downstairs, I mean like upstairs in the manor house, in the sort of beautiful palatial mansion, and then downstairs in the servants' quarter. The other really interesting thing that you don't see on Downton Abbey, but something that I learnt when I was um, reading about Princess Diana and her upbringing, um, is that many of these men in these big sort of uh, aristocratic families, they actually eat alone every meal of the day, even if they don't, even if they have a wife and children, the wife and children eat in another room at a, a different time of the day. So I think like that gives such insight into so many aspects of, <laughs> of like, uh, aristocratic behavior like this kind of like it's almost like why would anyone institute that tradition because that basically I mean I'm not saying I'm not saying that the men wanted to have uh, lunch and dinner with their with their families but deliberately keeping them apart it's almost like saying it's robbing them of sentimentality and feeling it's like we don't want you to have um, connections. We don't want you to have intimacies with other people. And like, as you may know, if, if you watch the queen, um, you know, the queen and her husband sleep in separate bedrooms and that's the rules. <laughs> um, like back in those days, it was the rules that a husband and wife would sleep in separate bedrooms. And listen, like there's nothing wrong with that, but it's also kind of, it comes from a place of like purity and piety to be like, well, you know, you can't be too sexy over there. Um, so it's like every, all these systems are in place specifically designed to keep people apart and keep people from building deep and meaningful relationships. Um, so I just think that's really interesting from a historical perspective. Um, also like the rituals involved, like the hunting and the shooting and the cricket and the you know, the weddings and so on, like it may sound tri trivial, but it's so, it's so insightful. And I do think that like, if I could have anything put on my gravestone, <laughs> it would be that Penny watches dumb things and takes them way too seriously. And that's just a big, that's just something I've accepted about myself. Like I sit there and watch Bridgerton and I'm like, well, there's no way she would be doing that without a chaperone <laughs> because I'm a nutcase. But anyway, that brings me on to a TikTok trend that I learned about. It's Sorry, I just had a sip of water in case you wondered where I went. It's called dark academia and apparently this is a Tumblr trend that started a few years ago but now it's kind of a TikTok trend and it's very along the lines of like Harry Potter and um, what's that movie with Julia Roberts? Mona Lisa Smile. And this is like, it's all tying into my theory that we all just want to run the hell back in time to a simpler time and a more romantic time. Um, I mean, of course it wasn't romantic for a lot of people, don't get me wrong, but um, actually most people. But yeah, it looks romantic from the outside. It looks not romantic, but 
I don't know, cozy, comforting somehow. Um, but that's the nature of nostalgia, right? You, it's like a disease. Um, who was I? I was reading a newsletter the other day. And, oh, I'm not going to remember who said this. Damn. But I'm going to tell you anyway. And hopefully I'll remember and I can put it in the show notes. But um, someone was saying like they think, oh, that's right. It was in the new Sally Rooney novel, which was fine. Um, I, I, I Actually, I'll give you my review on that after this. But they were saying that uh, the character in the novel was saying that um, they think that all beauty ceased to exist uh, in a real way once plastic was invented. And I mean, like, who can argue with that? <laughs> I don't think anyone's walking around going, I'm so glad they built that building over there that's just like, you know, concrete and shiny glass and I'm so glad I have this plastic object in my hand. You know, not that that's all to do with plastic, but like I think there's certainly um, a time period before and after plastic where it's just like, okay, we're, we're, aesthetic, we're in aesthetic de- decline. Um, and here's my quick review of Sally Rooney's books. And this is a bit of a hot take. <laughs> um, so you're going to hate me if you love Sally Rooney. But my feeling is Sally Rooney actually wrote really compellingly about the experiences of young people at university. And that's because she is young. And now she's trying to write about adults and she's not doing such a good job because she's she has no life experience, really. She doesn't have experience that's universally relatable in any way. Um, she's got this very – she's had this stratospheric rise to fame and fortune and it's been happening for six years. So she's kind of like 30 years old and super famous and super wealthy. And so my feeling is – and, and a habit that I'm trying to make in my reading at the moment, which is going really well and it's being extremely, it's been an extremely um, rewarding experience, is now I'm only reading stuff by older women. I, I'll read stuff by older men as well, but I think there's this big trap in the literary world that obviously like in publishing houses, um, you know, they want... They want to market someone. They want to find someone who is marketable. And what is marketable is young geniuses. So like, you know, everybody wants to know what's happening in, inside the mind of someone who's young and prodigious and who's written a really, really good book when they're only 25 or whatever. Um, so the, the machine is kind of geared towards p- promoting and publicizing these young women who and I don't have anything against them, but like they have no, they have nothing to say. <laughs> like they've learned all this stuff from the internet and from university and they are regurgitating it into a very well executed book. And that's a fucking harsh criticism. And of course I don't, that, that that's an exaggerated version of what I really think, obviously, like, of course they're writing good books. Of course they do have something to say, but like, they don't have real experience with it. And so it just feels like a cheap imitation in a way. It's like they're performing good literature instead of creating it. Um, and so I'm I'm just trying to find things by older women. And I tell you what, it's a fucking great idea. Sorry, I'm swearing a lot now. It's a really good idea to do this because like you can learn about life. You can get insight. You can 
you can share on a journey um, that's actually been a, a, a path that's actually been trodden. Um, so a couple of authors that I'm loving at the moment are Deborah Levy, Rachel Kask, um, and then of course like some and also I'm reading a lot of classics at the moment. So I just read a book called The Artificial Silk Girl by Ermgard Kuna, I think. <sighs> Impossible name, but it's it's a story from the 20s. It's like, you know, it's old. So it's like, you know, it's fascinating from a historical perspective. Um, I'm also reading something by Ernest Hemingway, which I never thought I would do, but I'm quite enjoying it. And my next stop is Dostoevsky, which I'm a bit nervous about, but I'll see how I go. There's no pressure. Um, oh, and my final thing that I'm going to talk about, cause I'm coming up to 30 minutes and that's just about, this has been quite the monologue, <laughs> um, is a really great podcast. Okay. So let me, let me be completely honest. Um, I actually, <laughs> I heard a podcast that interviewed Alex Jones recently and I was like, this is not what I expected. I kind of, it started off not what I expected. Like I, I thought Alex Jones was a raving lunatic. I've really, ha- I've, I've spent no time looking into who Alex Jones is and what he stands for, but I've obviously seen a couple of clips here and there where he's raving like an actual madman and it's just like why would anyone spend a single second of their lives paying attention to this like it's so aesthetically displeasing on a on a base level but then even if you go past that you're like he's talking absolute garbage so I've never taken him seriously he was on this podcast I listened to it he the first half I would say he sounded quite reasonable um but of course I say that not having any context. So I'm again, like I'm not involved in his world at all. So I can't, and I'm not involved in the world of American politics anymore. Well, sorry, I never was involved, but I don't participate in it from a reading perspective. Um, So I don't, I really don't know if he's lying or not. (laughs) I couldn't tell you. Sometimes people say things with a lot of conviction and you're like, Oh, that sounds reasonable. And then you find out they're just blatantly lying. So he sounded a bit reasonable. He said some things that I completely agree with um, in terms of like the media and the Democrats and so on and so forth. Um, and then at the end, he kind of went a little bit <laughs> sideways. He, he used words like intergalactic <laughs> um, and the, the, the oh, I can't remember what else he said, but the terminology he was using was like, I would say like pretty strong conspiracy theory-esque terminology. And then I was like, I'm going to check out his website. I've never, I've never known anything about him. I wonder if I'll become radicalized if I, (laughs) if I go into his website. And so I did. Um, And I just found it all really strange. Um, There was stuff that I learned, for example, apparently now I, of course this could be completely untrue, but Apparently in Africa, they have like this bizarre, um, they have bizarrely low COVID numbers and COVID deaths. Um, We thought that as a West, as the West, we thought that um, Africa would really profoundly suffer at the hands of COVID, or sorry, not the hands of COVID, 
suffer from many, many COVID deaths. But bizarrely, even without vaccinations, they are doing really perfectly fine, much better than vaccinated countries, much better than countries went into lockdown, blah, blah, blah. So I did actually, I fact-checked this. Um, I went on the internet and poked around and looked at some credible sources and this is actually a true thing. Um, I learned that, so that was interesting. Um, and then I kind of looked at a few other things and I was like, this is, it's just, I think the thing is everybody has a right to say stuff but it's just the the level of editing and the le- level of bias that goes into everything on that website is just off the chain. Um, and so, of course, I was like, okay, well, that was that was less exciting than I was hoping for. I was hoping for a couple of, you know, radical conspiracy theories or something. I've always been partial to an interesting little conspiracy theory. I love to hear how, how creative people can be with like – tiny little nuanced pieces of information and how they can drag them into a totally new context. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Do, 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 do. Oh yeah. And so I, I'd listened to that. I was kind of disappointed. Um, and then I do subscribe to this other podcast. So I kind of like, I was looking for something else to listen to while I went for a walk that the other podcast is called, um, the rest is history and it's a history podcast it's by two british guys they're pretty conservative in their politics but that really doesn't matter because they're historians so they tend to if you're i think if you're aware of their of how conservative biases present in historical representation then it's totally fine. But if you're not, then maybe you'd be a bit more susceptible to being like, oh, yeah, well, they're, they're absolutely right. But um, they did an episode on the CIA, which is 100% one of my fave topics. The CIA are bonkers. They have done so many bad things. They are a net positive, a uh, net negative organization, in my opinion. Um, so I kind of really enjoyed that. I, I will link it in the show notes. Um, and if you don't know anything about the like um, about the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency in the US, I highly recommend you listen to this episode because I think once you <laughs> – this is going to sound a little red pilly, but like once you actually know what the CIA have done and admit to, then you start to be like, oh, okay, maybe – Maybe maybe this is why a lot of people distrust the government and they distrust America and they have issues with, um, you know, conspiracy theories and so on because the CIA have actually done loads of insane things like MKUltra, they've th- overthrown governments, they've like, they, they've done so many crazy things. I won't even get into the start of it. Um, but you should listen to that podcast and, and enjoy it. Um, and the final thing I have to say about Alex Jones is uh, because I was really – I listened to a couple of videos and I was like – while I was kind of like cleaning my house or whatever. And I was like, what's the problem here? Because I do believe in free speech. I like the way Germany bans like Nazi talk. I think that's cool because that's like, you know, why do you ever want to do a Heil Hitler? What – what benefit is that going to bring to anyone's life? Um, but on the whole, I think people should be able to express opinions. 
But I think what the problem they have with people like Alex Jones and Joe Rogan is that they are interviewing people often, controversial people, and they're saying like, we want to give this guy a platform because he's not being interviewed by the mainstream media, um, blah, 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 blah. And I think in essence, that's sort of okay. But the problem is neither of those guys are journalists and journalists are meant to be, you know, reasonably unbiased. So like... I, I don't have any sort of like statistics on this, but the idea, the whole idea of being a journalist is that you investigate something without a preconceived notion as to how it should come out. So I find that, that a couple of times when I've listened to like interviews on Joe Rogan or, or the Alex Jones stuff, they are actually pursuing an agenda. They are asking questions to prove something to the audience. Um, and whether that proof is like, oh, this guy's just a nice guy, you know, like, and I hear Joe Rogan saying that a lot. He's like, he's a really nice guy and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, mate, nice guys have <laughs> the bane of civilization, in my opinion, like be an asshole, put it on the table. Um, but yeah, like the, they kind of have this agenda and they ask questions accordingly. So they, den- they tend to not, you know, push certain angles in order to reveal the, you know, inadequacies in a, of an argument to the public. They don't have any journalistic responsibility. And I think that's what's dangerous. I don't think that they sh- aren't, don't have a right to have a platform or a voice. And I do think they are speaking to a massive amount of people um, but uh, that obviously resonate with them a lot. And I think that counts for something, you know, like the, there is a popular kind of support for these type of guys um, and, and girls, but I don't know of any. Um, and so that, you know, that counts for something, but I just wish that A, the general public had a little bit more critical thinking uh, or awareness about like biases and agendas um, or B, that maybe Joe Rogan and Alex Jones need to be submitted to some, um, sorry, I'm burping a lot, some kind of um, journalistic rigor um, and, and journalistic structure and integrity because maybe that's a way to go um, because I think, you know, they do have these incredibly large audiences and the more that we kind of de-platform them the more powerful those audiences become and I think it's really funny because like I see all the time on LinkedIn and so on like people who work at Spotify being like we are so pro-diversity and inclusion and we do things for the environment and we do things for social causes and it just makes me laugh because it's like they are just weaponizing or utilizing these sort of social justice campaigns um, in order to appear to be, it's it's kind of like greenwashing or um, what's the other thing where you, well, they're just pretending to be a good conscious company by using the language and the, and the campaigns and the terminology of the woke left. Um, but really like at the same time, they pay Joe Rogan like $200 million to exclusively broadcast on their on their platform so I'm not saying that Joe Rogan is not left-wing I think he identifies as left-wing but but he certainly platform he certainly interviews a whole boatload of like pretty right-wing dudes um 
and and a lot of dudes you know he's not a he's not a diversity podcast so it's like the my point there is like i am very passionate about watching what people do over a a time period instead of just listening to what they say because i can sit here and say i'm gonna go to the moon tomorrow all i want but it's completely meaningless unless i go to the moon or at least genuinely try to go to the moon um so yeah maybe that's just something to keep in mind um that's 40 minutes okay I mean, one thing I want to say is like, if you want to send me little emails and like converse with me in any way, please do that. Um, I'd love to read out letters. I'd love to answer questions, whatever you like. Also, um, one thing that I'm planning on doing is having guests on the show. Um, So these guests are not going to be like celebrities or anything. They're probably going to be my friends and we're probably going to just talk about strange little things or like things that obsess us or it'll just be like you're sitting at the kitchen table with me and my friends um so if you get bored of me maybe just stay subscribed so that you can get updates about uh like when I have friends on but actually if you're bored with me then it's not going to make it any better if I have a friend on so feel free to unsubscribe um thank you so much for listening I hope that was a good episode and that you could hear peace